0: Hey, hi, hello. Welcome to Hollywood Party, I'm glad you could make it back. The guest this week might not seem extremely high maintenance, but I had to wade through a lot of different sources to figure her out. She is definitely different from who I thought she was, so maybe Katherine Hepburn will surprise you too. Grab a drink and join the party. Catherine Houghton Hepburn was born May 12, 1907, in Hartford, Connecticut, to Dr. Thomas Hepburn, known as Hep, and Catherine Houghton, who went by Kit. Hep's medical specialty was in VD and Kit was a big time suffragette. The Hollywood press liked to say that Kate came from a very affluent family. She did, but it didn't happen until she was a teenager. That's because her dad's practice didn't take off until World War I because all the other doctors went off to war. Hep came from a southern family who was still pretty pissed off about losing the war. And Kit came from a wealthy-ish family from upstate New York. She went to Bryn Mawr and Hep was just fine with her working as long as she didn't make more money than him kit was instrumental in exposing sex trafficking going on in connecticut that was going down on the land owned by the catholic church ew after the 19th amendment was passed people thought kit should run for senate and she ran home super excited to tell hep hey i'm gonna run for the senate and he says okay when do we get a divorce so he wasn't as enlightened as we hoped. He also believed in eugenics, so not great. All of the kids, there were five total, tried to get their dad's attention because he never, ever said he was proud of them. Obviously, he was a hard worker and his kids said he was a great storyteller, but he had a huge ego, like most doctors, and major anger issues that just did not fade with age. His grandkids thought he was a huge dick. Like, Kate said that he would crack her across the face of the dinner table just because he didn't like what she was saying. She was their second child. Her older brother, Tom, was her best friend. He was very fidgety and had this disease called chorea, which is an involuntary muscle movement kind of similar to Tourette's. Hep was super ashamed that he couldn't fix his own son, so Kate decided she would make up for her brother, and she became very athletic and tough so that she could be her dad's companion. She definitely took it to the extreme by shaving her head and telling everyone her name wasn't Kate, it was Jimmy. She felt that the house was split into two households, Kit, Hep, Tom, and Kate, and then the rest of the kids. The Hepburn house was, there's like no other way to say it. It was freaking weird. On Sundays, Everybody would sunbathe naked, just hanging out with their ding-dongs out, reading the Sunday paper. Kate would bring girlfriends home from school, and her dad would introduce himself to them totally naked. Like, it is the 19-teens, not 1969 in Berkeley. How did he not get arrested? Obviously, her parents were very open about sex, but her mom, since she was a suffragette, knew a lot of bachelor gals, you know what I mean, who lived in New York, including a few of her own sisters. Since Kate and Tom were older, they were allowed to visit their aunts in New York alone. On one of these trips, Kate went into Tom's room, which was in the attic, and found that he had hung himself. He was 15. Hep thought suicide was extremely shameful, so the family blamed it on a number of reasons. He did it because of a movie they had seen the night before. It was a magic trick gone wrong. It was adolescent insanity. What the fuck is that? Or, oh, a girl rejected him, so he hung himself. Okay, rich white boys who get rejected by girls do not kill themselves. They kill everybody else. Decades later, Kate really quick says, Well, it might have been over a boy. Boom. That is way more believable. This is the only time she ever sees her parents cry. Tom did not get a funeral, and when her dad went to pick up his ashes, he said, Put them in a candy box. He doesn't deserve anything fancy. Father of the year, this guy. Two days after Tom committed suicide, Hep's own brother killed himself. So, something weird is going on in this family. After Tom's death, Kate's parents let her get a private tutor, and she kind of fills his place even more by taking over his birthday. She was born in May, he was born in November. She also started golfing with her dad almost daily. When she was 16, she won the Connecticut Women's Golf Championship. And like her mom, she went to Bryn Mawr, but hated the first two years and almost got kicked out because her grades were awful. Then she got into the drama department. She was able to play all the boy roles because she was tall and lean and she had her hair cut short. She loved it and told her dad she wanted to be an actress. But really, she said, I wanted to be famous. I wanted to be noticed. I didn't really care in what. Who knew Katherine Hepburn and the Kardashians had so much in common? Some of her friends in college were at the very least crushing on her super hard because she looked like a boy and they would call her My Kate. But at this time, she meets her first love, H. Phelps Putnam. He was 13 years older than her and a moody alcoholic poet who was also married she even lived with him for a little while after she graduated from college but they never had sex her entire life all of her friends or intimates said she hated skin on skin contact that's not normal like are there any psychologists listening i don't know what's going on with her besides finding her dead brother she didn't really have any trauma in her youth so what's this about also around this time she lets two boys take nude photos of her obviously nudity is not a big deal to her but putting it on a photograph is something totally different one boy's name was jack he was gay and the other was ludlow luddy ogden smith super waspy name jack was kate's first gay friend and she said she preferred them because with no wife or children all their attention could be on her luddy and kate had a ton in common suffragette moms dead older brothers disappointed fathers he ran with Porter bohemian crowd and at 30 was not married never had a girlfriend but was best friends with jack who was gay so in 1923 letty has a mental breakdown wonder why then has an epiphany like oh kate is the perfect person to marry because she's very free-thinking and definitely does not want any physical stuff so they quickly get married like on a Wednesday afternoon in December with just their parents and siblings it was like they had to hurry up and do it so they wouldn't chicken out this also happened two weeks after Kate's first Broadway flop so she decided she's giving up on acting and going to settle down it's kind of like the equivalent of a Vegas wedding like I can smell the desperation she said that Luddy was the only person she ever had sex with and this is one of the few things that she says that I actually believe they moved one block away from Jack in New York City. and Kate went back to acting. Partly because she wanted to, partly because she still wanted to become famous, and partly because Luddy borrowed money to invest in the stock market, and then it crashed. She was pretty pissed about that. But Kate wasn't great with her own money either, since her dad controlled everything until he died in the 60s. She got an allowance from her own money well into her own 50s that's some britney Spears shit while kate's acting she meets laura harding who kate says i think it's fair to say she saved my life from what okay laura was the granddaughter of jay cook who helped finance the civil war it was the union side so that's a little bit better i guess one of their friends said if kate had a great love other than herself it was laura laura hated the term lesbian. Many of the hoity-toity ladies Kate would know were similar with their dislike of that term. Their interpretation of the word was that it referred to an old predatory woman who hated men, yet felt she was a man trapped in a woman's body. Well, Laura also wanted to be a boy when she was younger and wanted attention from her father because she was the only girl in the family. She also never married, so I'm gonna go with she probably was a lesbian. Anywho, because of Laura, Kate starts rubbing elbows with super high society of New York. This is how she meets her agent, Leland Hayward. He was a total ladies' man. All the mogul's wives loved him. He flunked out of Princeton and he helped shape Gloria Swanson's image in the late 20s. He took both of the girls to Hollywood on the same train as Kate's upcoming co-star, Billy Burke. When they got to RKO, George Cukor, Myron, and David O. Selznick all thought, what is this hot mess that just stepped off the train? What they actually said was that she looked like a bo. Constructor on a fast. She did have thin hair, and because she was pale, her skin would get red blotches all over it. All this is an easy fix with the makeup department. Besides, Hollywood loves an ugly duckling story. Betty Davis had one, Joan Crawford, they're prime examples. After her makeover, she never questioned George Cukor again. Besides not liking her looks in the beginning, George also didn't like her shitty attitude. She came in thinking she was slumming it coming to Hollywood. New York City people, I do not understand you. You try so hard to tell everyone how wonderful New York is, who are you really trying to convince? LA people don't go around telling you how great it is, they do the opposite. The traffic's awful, just don't come, stay on the East Coast. These Broadway people think Hollywood's so beneath them, yet they rarely make it in Hollywood because they can't there is a recording of kate talking to george about her early days in la like the recordings happening in the late 60s and she goes on saying that she never went for the glitz and the glamour and he laughs saying you did you know if the recorder wasn't going he would have said really bitch? then why were you at all my parties running around the beach in santa monica come on get out of here during this time she has to have surgery maybe it's to remove an ovarian cyst possibly a hysterectomy either way she says that she made the choice early on to have a career and no kids luddy said he wanted to be a couple again because jack left him and his dad died so he's like having a weird identity crisis Kate had not told the studios she was even married. So when the press found out, RKO was not happy. Really, Claudette Colbert screwed everything up for everyone because she had an open relationship with Norman Foster where they were living in two totally different houses. Once that was out, everybody had to pretend they were being normal. So Kate living in LA with a rich female companion and her husband living on the East Coast was not a great look. Was she intimate with Laura Harding though? in those recordings that george cukor did she said romantic magic between two people is what sex should represent it goes on forever because you can't describe it to me and i can't describe it to you it's the magic of life it kind of seems like kate wants a soap opera kind of love nothing really happens except for tension so the press starts attacking her for abandoning her husband and for wearing pants. This is the first time they weren't heaping praise on her and like most narcissists, she could not stand it. She hated the press, but wanted fame on her terms, which is not how fame works. For someone coming from a large family, I get such only child vibes from her, like it's insane. To make matters worse, she makes a few flops, including uh, a big flop on Broadway, so she decides to run away. Last time she ran away, it was to marriage. This time, it is to France. She went with the new girlfriend, Suzanne Steele, who was a protege of an opera singer, and had given Kate lessons for the Broadway play that she just took a dump with. The night before she gets on the ship, she wins the Oscar, but refuses to speak to any of the press, so Suzanne has to act as her secretary. The entire way there, Kate stays in their cabin, doesn't want to be social. They're going to the Riviera to speak with a friend of Kit's who knew Hemingway, because for some reason, Catherine wanted to talk to him. That friend said Ernest was on his way back to New York City, like on the next boat, so they got to France and legit just turned right back around. Kate made a point to beeline to him in the dining room. This trip was totally different. She's out of the cabin every night, being social having fun so when she gets off the ship it's with hemingway and she is in no rush to get away from the press now after talking to him the entire trip she must have realized she had to play the game to get what she wanted she knew she could get the press to understand her love of wearing pants but a girlfriend is a different story so kate literally leaves susan on the gangplank not even turning around to say goodbye to her when she gets back to LA, she files for divorce, banishes Laura Hardy back to the East Coast, and leaks to the press that she and her agent Leland are in love. While she's trying to fix her publicity, her career is still kind of in the dumps. And Betty Davis's performance in Of Human Bondage was just called the best performance recorded on screen ever. And that really chapped Kate's ass. She never got along with Betty Davis. Her not liking Davis makes more sense than Joan Crawford not liking her. I think kate and betty would compete for more roles than betty and joan they're just much more similar serious actresses who were both yankees and like to be uncomfortable because of that what is with that yankees why do you like being uncomfortable do you think that makes you better it's okay to be comfortable freaking weirdos Kate's career bounced back with Alice Adams, and then she and George had a genius idea to really mess with people and do a gender-bending movie called Sylvia Scarlet. Pandro Berman was the producer, and he didn't get it at all. He said, I despised everything about it. It was a private promotion deal of Hepburn and Cukor. They conned me into it and had a script written. I said to them, Jesus, this is awful, terrible. I don't understand a thing that's going on. They were hell-bent, claiming this is the greatest thing they had ever found. Obviously, had it been a hit, Pandora would have been singing a different tune, but the film was so bad that she had to sit down and do interviews with the press to try and get them to at least like her, since they did not like that movie. Plus, they dubbed her Haughty Hepburn prior to this, so she kind of had to pay the piper. She did get divorced from Letty, even though he hung out with her parents for years afterwards. She did go ahead and get herself an all-new entourage of super-masculine lesbians, so, you know, she just doesn't learn. When she did Marry Queen of Scots with John Ford, RKO sent out press releases that she was the greatest actress. In 1979, Ford's son wrote a biography on his dad and revealed that he had an affair with Catherine Hepburn. She apparently liked being the elder woman because, in her mind, she was winning an imaginary competition with the wife because she was more alluring, attractive, and special than that old bag. When she was asked about this years later, she said they were not involved. But again, she says that she and her friends were not lesbians. So, it's seems that maybe since intercourse wasn't happening, she didn't consider herself involved with these people. Kate would have made an amazing lawyer or politician because if the word didn't jive with her own personal definition, it didn't happen. It is thoroughly obnoxious while trying to research someone. Also, Maureen O'Hara said that she caught Ford smooching on some unnamed actor. Ford discovered John Wayne when he was hot, then he went on to mentor Rock Hudson. Did he like Kate because she kinda looked like a very feminine dude? Maybe. One relationship she could not deny was an actual thing was with my least favorite person, Howard Hughes. They met when he landed his plane on a beach while she was filming Sylvia Scarlett. They didn't really start seeing each other until she went back east to do Jane Eyre on the stage. She said, He was sort of the top of the available men and I of the women. It seems logical for us to be together. We each had a wild desire to be famous. That last statement is the only part of that I believe. When I think of old Hollywood babes, I do not think of Katherine Hepburn ever. The time frame in this is 1938, so I'll let you pick your own list of ladies you would rather be with at that time. And I get Howard Hughes was super rich, so I understand why people want to be with him, even though he was super weird. Their relationship is the only one that she allows the world to see in real time. He did propose to her. She turned him down and then moved into his house in LA. The scene in The Aviator where Hughes goes to visit her family is spot on. Kate had to pay to install an indoor shower for him at her parents' house because they all showered outside with cold water next to the beach, so everyone could see them because freaking nudists. We all know how weird Howard Hughes was, but what does that say about her family when he goes in there and says, damn, these people are batshit, dude. She said that eventually their relationship turned to friends because she was self-absorbed and career-minded, but he did have an affair with Betty Davis in 1938, so that probably had something to do with it. Bringing Up Baby bombed because the theaters were flooded with screwball comedies that year, like The Awful Truth and Nothing Sacred. So two weeks after she was labeled box office poison, RKO canceled her contract. Playwright Philip Berry went to visit Kate's family for two weeks and then ended up writing the Philadelphia story for her or about her. She told him, make it like me, but softer. That play opened to rave reviews on stage And MGM wanted to buy it for Norma Shearer, but because Catherine owned the rights to the story, she was able to do it. But she was not able to get the leads she wanted, Clark Gable and Spencer Tracy. At the same time as the Philadelphia story is coming out, one of her little brothers wrote a play called Sea Air about her and Howard Hughes. It was way more autobiographical than Philadelphia story. In this play, she is self-absorbed and only cares about fame, that checks out. And Hughes is the most sympathetic character because he's surrounded by all these insane Hepburns. It was never produced, and Kate gave her brother an allowance for the rest of his life to make up for the money he lost by not producing this play. For her next movie, Woman of the Year, she was able to get Spencer Tracy. He had never seen any of her films, but he'd heard of her. He was known as a true actor, so that must have kind of bruised her ego a little bit. The film was written by Garson Cannon. Kate had been introduced to him by Vivian Lee at one of George's parties. There were rumors that Garson and Kate were dating, but he was married to Ruth Gordon, who was older than him and not a babe, but the couple was very close with Kate and Spencer. Kate and Spence didn't get married for a number of reasons, but one of them was that the group that they hung out with, they didn't care, like they did not care about conventional relationships. We will definitely be giving Spencer his own party, but he was married, with kids, one of whom was deaf, so there was no way he could leave because that would have looked awful. Garson wrote the movies that made Kate and Spence a team, and he created their myth by writing a book about them in the late 70s, which I will definitely be getting to. So here's the deal, they started their fling during Keeper of the Flame. She liked him because he didn't want to have any in-depth conversations, yet she says she hates small talk, so what the F are they even talking about? If you think, well, they're definitely banging the entire time? Well, we have input from one of our past guests, whose bullshit meter is always spot on. Irene Mayer Selznick, who was a very close friend of Kate's, said that, I never believed that relationship with Spence was about sex. You can't drink as much as Spence did and maintain a relationship built on sex. I freaking love irene if spencer's dong did work once in a while he still went out socially with other gals he told joan fontaine that he and kate were just platonic and he definitely was in love or lust with jean tierney so i'm i'm going with irene like this is a platonic friendship and if you have some idealistic version of spencer tracy in your head and you don't want it ruined go ahead and fast forward like a minute or two i will not be offended Okay, so I know I've talked about this before. There's a book called Full Service by Scotty Bowers. He's a guy who worked at a gas station where instead of picking up Cheetos and a Diet Coke for the road, you could pick up a hooker or a trick. Spence met Scotty at one of George's parties and he would spend many evenings with him. Kate was well aware of this. She didn't want to talk about sex with her gay friends and really judged Spencer about having sex with other men. Lots of hypocrisy going on with her, but whatever. I have said that Full Service is a filthy, dirty book. I don't mind, but if you're looking for a light read, don't pick it up. And just because it's a dirty book doesn't mean that what happened in it didn't actually happen in real life. All of George's friends who were asked about Scotty backed him up, and he said that George totally trusted him. So... I mean, Spence was a hardcore booze hound. Could it be because he hated himself for his gay tendencies? Gee, I don't know. Kate isn't totally innocent here because she has used Scotty's services as well. She asked him to find her a dark-haired young lady to go hiking with. Is that what we're calling it now, hiking? The young lady said that Kate was very nice to her In 1946, Spence has the worst bender of his life and the doctors told Kate he has to stay dry and to her credit, she was able to be unselfish for like once in her life and keep him alive. It was hard. Spence was a total addict and he could be super mean to her but she knew it was because he was struggling to stay sober. Plus, her dad was an asshole with a temper so once you live through that, having someone else yell mean shit at you doesn't sting as bad. They never lived together. Spence lived at the Beverly Hills Hotel and in Kate's longest LA residence, was at John Gilbert's old home another famous drunk. That house is still around, but not for sale, so sorry, I have no photos of it for you. Kate was able to keep Spence sober from booze, but he was still on barbiturates, secanol, and dexedrine, so he's still high as a kite. During the HUAC meetings, Kate's career took another dive because everyone thought she's a friend of the commies. So Spence repaid the favor of her saving his life and saved her career by having her do State of the Union with him. Then they did Adam's Rib, which was their biggest hit ever. Unfortunately, her contract was not renewed at MGM because TV was just messing everything up. Kate lived next door to Judy Garland when she got fired from MGM and then tried to kill herself. Of course, Kate just barges right in and says, you need to come live with me and I'll straighten you out. Judy Garland, hard pass on that one. She did not go live with Kate Hepburn. When Kate starts doing African Queen, this is when publicly she becomes a spinster and says she doesn't care about her career or stardom. This is a direct quote from her. That Public creature is something I invented. It's not me. Not at all. The rest of her life is going to be blurred between reality and this bullshit book that Garson Cannon whipped up. She goes on to perpetuate it for decades. It's so. Funny freaking infuriating. I got more and more annoyed having to wade through the crap and you know who else couldn't handle it? Irene. She's my dog. Why are there not more books out about her? Nowhere in Garson's book or in any of Kate's interviews or autobiographies does she talk about leaving Spence in 1952. She hated that he was joining in on the Sunday night pool parties at George's and told him he should stop hanging out with all these little boys. One, it's pretty homophobic. Two, if you don't know about George's parties, go back. He's the third guest of ours, and I will break it down for you. So, Kate bounces around Europe, does some more plays, and then goes on a Jamaican holiday with Noel Coward and Irene. Irene had to tell her, this is a vacation, and I swear to God, I will smack you if you make me do a ton of activities. They had planned on doing this, like, movie or play together. Irene was going to produce it. Catherine wanted to direct it. It never came to be, unfortunately for us. Kate lives in London for most of 1954 and 1955, which is also something she doesn't talk about when she's telling her own story. She refused she to do the horror movies like most of the other actresses her age did, so she knew she was going to start having to take second billing, which is what she did when she filmed Suddenly Last Summer. On that set, she worked with Montgomery Clift, who was an alcoholic, and she thought that he was weak because he wouldn't do everything she told him to do so he would recover. She also hated the way that Joe Mankiewicz treated him, and spit at Joe's feet because of it he could get his drink on too, so. While she's away, Spence gets fired from MGM for drinking. He apparently became a grandfather and that was his reaction. Just go on a bender. It was so bad that he had to start using an oxygen tank. Kate moved him into a bungalow at George's and that is where he had a massive heart attack and died on June 10th, 1967. His wife showed up, looked at Kate and said, I thought you were a rumor because louise his wife said that kate who formerly loved being the other woman got super pissed she couldn't be the main event now because after spence died that goes to his wife george said that kate was angry all the time after spencer's death and he didn't know why come on george you know why I will give Kate some credit because she respected the family and did not go to the funeral, but since she was angry, she turned this relationship with Spencer into the main one of her life, completely romanticizing it and turning it into this, like, bastardized fairy tale. Let's take a quick little breather. I don't want to say, like, go grab a cocktail because we're talking about alcoholics so much. Go grab a Diet Coke and, uh, I'll be right back. When she did go back to work, it was to do Coco on Broadway. Alan Lerner wanted her to do it, but Freddie Breeson wanted his wife, Roz Russell, to play that part, duh. I mean, it's not like Roz was much of a singer, but damn, more than Kate. Then Claudette Colbert hears about it, and she's like, hey, I speak French, I'm the right age, I can sing better than Katherine Hepburn, but she said the only problem was, I'm not a lesbian. She wasn't. Don't protest too hard Claudette. You were the one with the open relationship. Like we're gonna get to you soon enough. Kate 1000% thought she was gonna win the Tony for Coco. She was up against her friend Lauren Bacall. And since she never goes to award ceremonies, she told Lauren, pick up the award for me when I win. <laughs> Lauren Bacall won. What effing arrogance. The next day, Lauren Bacall gets a knock at her door and Catherine Hepburn has sent over a self portrait. Like what? Congratulations on winning, here's a picture of me? What? Anyways, back to Coco, the only person Catherine wanted to replace her was Gloria Swanson. They went with a much younger actress and pissed off everybody involved. Okay, so this Garson Cannon book I've referenced a number of times during this party came out in 1971. Irene was given a copy of it before it even was published, so she calls up George and Kate and says, hey, um, (gasps) what the F, did you guys okay this? And Kate calls up Garson and says, hey, you need to kill this book, and he says no. The book is mostly dialogue, so it makes the reader think that, oh, he must have kept really good diaries. He did, but not that good. I mean, fool was drinking at these parties. Garson said, when I write a line and I don't hear a lot of dollar signs go off, I erase it. Kate didn't speak with him again until after his wife, Ruth Gordon, died, and George didn't make up with him until much later in life. Kate bitched openly about this book, yet loved the attention it brought her. What's kind of interesting is she does a ton of interviews in the 70s and 80s, and in every single one, they're like, oh, she's such a recluse. Dude, she just was on like ABC, BBC, Dick Cavett, what the hell? The one she did with Dick Cavett is interesting to watch because she's super bossy, and then says, Cold, sober, I find myself absolutely fascinating. She really did have the confidence of a straight white dude. Speaking of men, the only man she hung out with after her beef with Garson was her ex-husband, Luddy. He came to see her in a play and she found out he was dying of cancer, so she helped take care of him before he died. All she asked for was some of his firewood and her letters that she wrote to him. No one knows what became of these letters, I do. Like she asked for firewood and old paper, put it together, they're gone. She and George had a big tiff in the 1970s because he sold the bungalow that Spencer lived in. He needed money, it's kind of old. So he offered Kate the house for 70 grand. She had plenty of cash. She could have bought it if she wanted to. She was appalled that he wouldn't just give it to her. So she literally ripped the mantle off of the fireplace that she did not own and left. They kind of made up towards the end of his life, but she did not even go to his funeral, which that's how Francis Goldwyn swooped in and made sure that he was buried next to her. She became friends with Spencer's daughter Susie later in life, further inflating their legend. And in 1991, she got $4 million to write her autobiography called Me. In the last 20 years of her life, her main health problems were skin related because she was super fair skinned and just wouldn't stay out of the sun. Also, she did not have Parkinson's. Her shakiness came from a tremor that was inherited from her paternal side of the family. The drugs she used to help treat the tremor caused depression. So in her later years, she started drinking a lot. It started off being four scotches a night. That grew to eight. Her friends ended up watering down the bottles just to make sure she wasn't totally blitzed. Unlike many of her Hollywood pals, she refused to become friends with the Reagans once he got into the White House. She hated his guts from way back in the Huwak days, and she thought he was totally trying to undo everything that her mother had fought for. So the only time she ever allowed her name to be used for fundraising was in 1989 for Planned Parenthood. In 2002, doctors found a tumor on her neck that they couldn't do anything about because She's old and her health isn't great, so she ended up passing away on June 29th, 2003 at her family home in Connecticut, and she was 96. She was cremated and buried in her family plot, also in Connecticut. The family she had left was surprised that she requested her plot be next to her brother, Tom. They thought for sure she'd wanna be next to her dad. They said, oh, how sweet, she still remembers him. That was her best friend. It doesn't really matter that he died 82 years ago or two years ago. I was totally not surprised that she ended up right next to Tom. So I know this party took an extra long time because I had to figure out what was true and what was totally bullcrap. There was something else. I could never figure out why I was never a fan of Katherine Hepburn. I was talking to a few friends who love old Hollywood and they're like, what the hell? She's right up your alley. So I was now on a quest to figure out why. Why do I not enjoy her as much as most people think I should? And I think I figured it out. It's because she's fake as hell. I know most movie stars are, but she's taking it to an extreme. She claims not to care about Hollywood, but she craves fame like it's crack cocaine. This is why I like Joan Crawford. She's a fame whore and she's really upfront about it, and she's definitely aware that we know. So even though she's playing the same Hollywood game, to me, she just comes off as more realistic than Kate, which brings me to the question, should she come to our party? Well, a lot of our other party guests got long great with her. She was a constant fixture at George's parties, so she must do well in a party situation, even though she is very me, 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 which can be difficult juggling all those egos at a party. I don't know, like, I'll leave her as a wild card. Irene Selznick loved her, so there's gotta be something that like just is not translating. Let me know what you think. Would you want her at our party? I think she's our third wild card or maybe second. I don't know. The next party will not be late because I already know how I feel about this guest. So we're right back on track. For more information about this episode, head over to HollywoodPartyPodcast.com and follow us on Instagram. If you like the show, tell every single person you know. Leave a review, it's super nice and it's free. Like and subscribe on Apple Podcast or Spotify or Anchor or however the hell you're listening to this. Thank you and I'll see you next week. That's that noisy girl, yeah, noisy girl.